how to start? Well, you know, it's just writing. I mean, here's something important to remember about dialogue. Every word matters. No, it doesn't. They're modern. I want to go to this place that I think it needs to go to. The only thing that counts is what you see on the screen. I will write like four or five, six hours a day. And it will be a voice made of ink and rage. Okay, I'm, re I'm really glad you asked me that question. Welcome to the Creative Principles Podcast. I'm your host, Brock Swinson. Over the past 200-plus episodes, I've had the good fortune of speaking with dozens of screenwriters, actors, and directors, such as Aaron Sorkin, Mel Brooks, Carrie Fukunaga, Whitney Cummings, Michael Imperioli, and William Monaghan, among others. We've dissected ideas on story, character, filmmaking, habits, and various principles for creative life. If this is your first time listening, make sure to hit that subscribe button on iTunes or SoundCloud. You can also find several of these interviews on the Creative Screenwriting Magazine website, in addition to some that aren't available in audio, such as with Nick Kroll or Stephen Merchant. In addition to the podcast, also make sure to search for the new video essay series on YouTube, also called Creative Principles, where we take a deep dive into movies and television. Join millions of viewers for subjects like the 16 personalities expressed as characters, Did Home Alone, Rowan John Hughes' Career, The Greatest Movie Never Made, and How Jackie Chan Creates Perfection Through Failure, among many more. That's Creative Principles on YouTube. Screenwriter James Vanderbilt returns for the third time to talk about his new film, Scream. Look for James in episodes 50 and 163 of the podcast for more great advice. In the new film, the plot reads, 25 years after the original series of murders in Woodsboro, a new ghost face emerges, and Sidney Prescott must return to uncover the truth. In this interview, James talks about writing secret projects, why he doesn't chase ideas, why writing is a marathon until it's a sprint, spinning multiple plates, and what separates Scream from other slasher films. Note, around 30 minutes into the interview, we also discuss Spider-Man No Way Home and Vanderbilt's experience with the Marvel franchise. If you haven't seen the film, do note there is a spoiler for Spider-Man around 30 minutes in. I'm always writing something. Um, I'm always trying to write a spec. I just sort of feel like I always, I always want to have something that's just for me. Um, that's not something I've promised somebody or playing in someone else's sort of IP or sandbox. So I think it sort of keeps me sane and, and um, also just keeps me, you know, in, in the fun of like, you know, making shit up. Like, it's just, you know, Oh, wouldn't it be cool if this happened? Well, I could, or this can happen. And then, I can write that down. And then at the end of it, there's also sort of a safety net of if I look at the thing and I'm like, oh, this is absolutely terrible. No one has to know. Um, so that I'm always I always kind of have what I call sort of a secret project going somewhere. Um, and then the other stuff is, you know, can be like you said, sort of, you know, assignments or, or you know, different IP we're developing. Um, I have this company, Project X, with um, William Sherrick and Paul Neinstein. So there's a lot of producing stuff. We produce a lot of stuff I don't write. And so having, you know, time to be... There's some, by the way, some, nothing more fun as a writer than uh, uh, not working on your own stuff, but trying to help other people. It's sort of a great form of procrastination that can ultimately end up making something. So, yeah. Are those ideas, do they come randomly? Do you watch movies with a certain lens on saying, oh, what if this side character was a star? Like, where do some of those things come from? 
I think they, they sort of come from all over, you know, and I, I, you know, my father, when I was a kid, was a, he, he was a musician, but he was a recording engineer was his day job. And he used to talk about the fact that as a recording engineer, even when he would listen to music for fun, he was always listening for the imperfections or looking for the. And so, and I think that's kind of, you know, I think all writers sort of, you know, even when you watch stuff for fun, your writer brain is never completely turned off. And so sometimes that can be a, you know, what if this happened? What if this character, but then also, you know, from, you know, I, I read a lot um, and, you know, watch the news and stuff like that. So ideas can kind of come from anywhere, you know, and, and um, I've, I've been lucky enough to do a few real life stories and, and um, that have literally just come out of, I directed a movie uh, called Truth, which came out of a Vanity Fair article I just read because I was reading Vanity Fair. Um, so I think, you know, ideas kind of come from all over. And I feel like usually when you least expect it, the good ones kind of drop in. So yeah, it's, um, I try not to chase them. I try to sort of let them occur, I guess. When do you know it, it's got legs? Do you know right away or do or you kind of get obsessed about a story or a character over time? I think it's a little bit of both. I think, you know, there's somewhere I just go, oh, that's cool. That could be really great. Um, and then I think it's st if stuff sort of sticks around in my head and I keep coming back to it or I keep, you know, I have a, you know, I keep notebooks and I, you know, notes on my phone and stuff like that. And I'll jot down, you know, a one sentence or two sentence idea, whether it be for a story or a character or just like, wouldn't it be cool? I mean, I'll, I'll write down what I think might be a cool line of dialogue and I don't know where it goes. Um, and if it kind of sticks in my head a little bit and I keep coming back to it and adding to it, eventually I go, oh, there's probably something here that I'm trying to work out. Um, and, um, and that can be, but I, again, I sort of try and, I try not to force that stuff because I sort of find, especially in the infancy of an idea, you can kind of smother it in the crib if you're not careful. Like you just have to be, or at least this is how my brain works is I kind of, you know, it, it, I, as I get older, there's much less of me going, all right, I'm going to sit down and figure this out and write it, you know? Um, it's much more of a go take a walk, go to the movies, hang out with your kids and, you know, let your underbrain kind of do some of that work for you. Mm. Do you kind of see, do you see the process at this point in your career as more patience or more busyness? You kind of mentioned having, a, having multiple projects going on at once. Does that help you always stay busy? And then the patients come as I think last time we spoke, you were maybe writing uh, the Jansen directive, which is still kind of listed as coming soon mm -hmm. with John Cena. So I think obviously these movies take a year. I think you said murder mystery took you about 10 years to make. So where does yeah. that patient and busy, how do you kind of balance those two things? I mean, I think it's sort of, it's, it's, you know, you can never, it's, it's, uh, especially on the, on the feature side too, it's always sort of, it's, it's a, it's a marathon until it's a sprint, you know, mm -hmm. um, and things, you know, murder mystery was an example of a movie was, I think it was about 13 years actually from the, the first thing, but once it became a movie, it actually became a movie really quickly. And we were suddenly going to go shoot it in, five months and you know so it like it was one of those those sorts of things and I think that in terms of the the thing that that kind of keeps me sane about it is is having multiple projects is having 
you know, things that, that, that are, you know, at different sort of stages. And, and I, I don't do well with um, being sedentary. I don't do well kind of just sort of sitting around waiting for the phone to ring. So that's actually where writing things for myself, I think, comes in to play in terms of just being self-care, which is, you know, if the sort of the big movie, you know, uh, Jansen Directive is a good example of it, and, and hopefully it will happen, uh, you know, soon, but it is, there was a moment a couple of years ago where it was about to happen, and then for various reasons it didn't. And I sort of, you know, when something like that occurs and something falls apart a little bit, the thing that keeps me sane is, oh no, but I'm actually over here working on this other thing that also could become a thing really quickly. So it, it's, um, you know, it's just that having a lot of plates spinning for me is really healthy um, and kind of keeps me sane in terms of not, you know, sort of freaking out of when is this going to get made, you know? Mm-hmm. Tell me, how did you first get involved with Scream? Was it a studio project? When did you kind of come on board and some of those things? So it Scream started from a place of, this company, our, my company, Project X, with William uh, and, and Paul, they're very close with Gary Barber, who runs Spyglass. Paul used to work for Gary. And Gary was starting this new iteration of Spyglass. And he had a lot of titles from the old Weinstein library. And one of them was Scream. And we went in to sort of talk about different things we could do together. And, and they had been talking to Gary about it. And Gary said, we have Scream. And I said, that's one of my favorite movies of all time. Like, it, it, it you know, legitimately was I saw the original when I was in college trying to become a screenwriter and watching a movie like that with Kevin's incredible screenplay, just being able to do everything, be scary, be funny, deconstruct the genre while at the same time being one of the best examples of the genre, you know, having his cake and eating it too was just so super amazing and formative. Um, And I said, I love that movie. And he said, would you write it? And I said, yeah. And he said, okay. And I said, okay. And we got into the, you know, William and Paul and I got in the elevator and went down to the ground floor. And I went, did we just get screen? And they're like, yeah, we did. Um, and it was this sort of amazing thing where there was no um, blueprint for it. There were no constraints. There was no, there was no version. It was just go and try and make the best version of a screen movie you can. And the first thing I did was I said, I know I want to write this with my friend Guy Busick, who had who had written uh, Ready or Not, which is a movie I produced, the Radio Silence directed. I've known him forever. I know how much the franchise means to him, too. And they wanted the movie so quickly that I was like, if we do this together, we can do this with a great speed. Um, and then the next thing I said was, we have to get Kevin Williamson involved, who was not at the time sort of attached to the project in any way. And I said, we have to go and see if Kevin would, you know, sort of grace us with his presence on this. And, and we were lucky enough that he said yes. Um, and then Guy and I sat in a room and we, walked, we, we each had a yellow legal pad and we put on all four movies um, over two nights. We didn't sort of talk to each other. We just took notes and watched the movies. And then we got together the next day and started going through just our thoughts of like, if you could put anything in a screen movie, what would you want to see as, as a fan? And about 90% of the things I had written down, he had written down. Like it was, a, we had mm. both went, oh, this movie should take place in Woodsboro. We both went, oh, this is where we should find the character of Sydney. This is where we should find the character of Dewey. This is where we should find the character. And we were completely in tune 
about all of that major stuff. Um, and then we broke sort of a very broad version of the story and pitched it to Kevin to get his sort of, you know, are we completely stupid? What do you, do you hate this? Do you want to throw? And he was like, no, I think that's great. And he gave us some really good notes and pointers. And we did the same with Spyglass and we went off and we wrote the draft and um, that's the movie uh, that, mm. that, you know, is in theaters now. So it, it was an amazing sort of easy process from beginning to end. Maybe like leaving plot aside, um, so what, some of those things on those notepads, what separates Scream besides maybe the meta stuff from other slasher films? What were some of your takes from watching the last four movies? Well, the thing that, you know, and, and I can't, somebody said this, it wasn't me, I read it somewhere, but I thought it was amazing was that, you know, slashers are almost always about the villains and Scream is always about the hero. You know, you know, Nightmare on Elm Street is about Freddy, you know, you know, Friday the 13th is about Jason. Scream is about Sydney, you know, and, and that's a really interesting sort of flip of how those movies are usually done. And we really wanted to sort of honor that idea. And then the other thing is, you know, Scream is always talking about it's a movie that's always in conversation with its audience at the time it comes out, you know, the same way in 1996, it talks about, it's sort of the, it's at the end of the slasher era and kind of poking fun at that, but reinventing it. And so it was really important for us. Um, and I don't want to talk about what the specific idea was because it's a spoiler, right. but that this movie be about something in 2022 that mm -hmm. wasn't necessarily around when Scream 4 was made that felt new and different and was a commentary on horror and entertainment the same way, you know, Kevin was able to do in all of those other movies. Hmm. So I'm looking at, at some of your, your other movies and there, there's over a dozen here I'm looking at, would you say that you've, uh, that's crazy, you, right? <laughs> <laughs> would you say yeah. that you've written more, maybe, maybe aside from like the losers, do you normally write, you know, single star two handers? Was this more of an ensemble piece? Was that a challenge? How did you kind of tackle that? That's an interesting, that's a great question. Um, I sort of thought of it that way, but it's, you're totally right. Um, you know, I think that, that by the nature of what a scream movie is and, and what a murder mystery movie is, um, and I don't mean like the movie murder mystery I made, but the, you know, just the genre, you know, you have to spend time with all of these characters so that you can suspect them. And so you can, you know, engage with them so you can be worried about them. So there's definitely, um, you know, you have to sort of in the screenplay have be very smart about hopefully the real estate you give to each character because you only have so much time with them in order to get the audience invested and involved with them before you know having to do the the stuff with the other characters so yeah i mean i hadn't i sort of it's interesting i don't think of the the movies i've made that way though i just sort of you know they're all sort of i sort of approach it what's the best way to tell this particular story and what's the most interesting thing that happens next you know how do you keep the story moving how do you keep the characters interesting how how can they interact with each other um, and less about sort of uh, this is a two-hander or this is a single character or this is a yeah um, yeah it's a good question 
at what point of like the pitching and writing process did the actors come in? Like where this is a franchise, did they come in sooner? Were you worried about, you know, people saying yes and no and those type of things? Well, very much so with this one, you know, the, you know, Nev Campbell is not going to sign on to a screen movie blindly. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It's not like, trust us, it'll be good. Especially, you know, Wes Craven had passed away. I think all of the, you know, the legacy actors were really concerned about the idea of doing another one. So the way we sort of approached it was, you know, we sort of would say, yeah, I'm sure we can, you know, make it without them if we need to. But then secretly inside, we're like, there's no way we can make this movie if we don't get everyone back. Um, and so Guy and I very much sort of took this, if you build it, they will come kind of idea, which is we're just going to write what we think is the best version of this movie that has all of them in it, that has all of them integral to the story. And we just have to, our job, and this is, I think, you know, my job on any movie is, I just have to write the characters interesting enough that an actor will want to play that, you know? And with, you know, with Nev and David and Courtney, it was also, how can we write, it's interesting, Guy and I talked a lot about the fact, and we love all of the sequels, but when you watch Scream 4, it feels a little bit like those actors are playing the same version of the characters they were playing in the first three movies. Mm-hmm. And, and they do that brilliantly. And we had a conversation about what if, you know, let, 10 years have passed, let's write these characters like 10 years have really passed in their lives and they're in different places. And let's give them new flavors to play on top of all of the stuff they're so good at. Let's give them something that they haven't done yet. Um, and I think that hopefully kind of makes the film feel realistic in the sense it's taking place 10 years later and gave them other sort of, you know, you know, flavors to play. It's not a spoiler to say Sydney's a mother now, you know, the same way Ned is a mother um, now and she wasn't before when she shot Scream 4. So all of those kind of different things we put into them and then just prayed to God, that, you know, they would want to come and, and, you know, play in the sandbox again. And thankfully they did, which was amazing. So you mentioned working with Guy on this and you said he's got credits for Ready or Not and I see Castle Rock too. What conversations, maybe aside from Scream, did you guys have about writing horror today? Like our audiences still scared and fearful and some of those things. What, what were you looking to do um, that made it you know, truly horrific or another, you know, been in the genre and that type of thing? I mean, I always, with horror, I'm always of the opinion that if you can get the audience invested in the characters and afraid what's going to happen to them, that's, that's what cracks it. That's your home. You know, that, that's what makes it such a great, wonderful, visceral experience. Um, it really comes down to the characters. And, and I know Guy feels the same way about that. And so, you know, crafting, you know, kill sequences and how they go down, that's honestly less um, difficult. The big, the big thing is getting audiences to care. You know what I mean? Because you can you can do the most violent kill sequence to somebody. And if they don't care about the character, then they're like, ah, whatever. You know, we've seen everything. Right. So I think that's the conversation that that we've always had with each other. Um, And I've seen him do so brilliantly in his other work and why I knew he'd be great for this. Um, But, yeah, it's it it is um, it's, it's really all about character with horror. I truly do believe that. 
And you kind of, I think your first film was Darkness Falls. You kind of like started with horror and then moved I did, yeah. towards like action. Like, has it always been there? Have you always been really fascinated with horror movies? I, you know, it's interesting. I was a total, when I was a kid, I was a total scaredy cat. I, I grew up <laughs> during, you know, the heyday of Jason and Freddy. I didn't want to see those movies. I hated that, you know, I hated that there was a show called Freddy's Nightmares that was on at like 6 p.m. Like, it just felt very unsafe to me um and then you know really it was probably scream that kind of cracked open the floodgates for me i went to college i saw it in college i had a a friend in college who was a huge fan of john carpenter and got me into the thing and so i sort of came to it later um and just really love the you know it's it's a very you know, people talk a lot about how the Western is a, is a very American, you know, genre of filmmaking. I, I feel like horror is 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 cinema really at its core because it's the one genre where the camera is so important. Like you have to have real filmmaking chops as a director, I think, and writer to pull off a good horror movie because it's mm-hmm. so technical. It's so about rhythm. It's so about, you know, character. It's so much about the timing of a scare and the, you know, all of that, knowing when to use a jump scare, knowing when not to use a jump scare, knowing how to build dreads. It's sort of like you can't, you can't hide bad, bad filmmakers can't make good horror. Just to sort of, Mm -hmm. I think is a really difficult thing to do. And that's why I think you see so many great filmmakers come out of horror, you know, I mean, you know, going back to De Palma and Scorsese, but then James Gunn, like, you know, it's, you're, it's, it's a real proving ground. Um, and in the case of Darkness Falls, that was a movie that I came in and did um, some work on at the very end of it. It was, it was John Fasano and John Hageman had already written the screenplay. I came in and did some dialogue work. But interestingly, that's where I met William Sherrick, who's my partner now. And that's where our friendship began 21 years ago that sort of has come all the way back to be able to make a screen movie. So it all interestingly, weirdly interconnected. Mm. Brent and I were talking about some of the movies that feel like, are they horror or are they true crime? Like the show True Detective. And I think your movie Zodiac falls in that too. Do you see that as a horror movie? It's interesting. I always sort of go, there are definitely horror elements to it. And it's, um, you know, the, the, I always sort of talk about the, the, the sequence in the, in the basement with Jake Gyllenhaal, where he sort of goes downstairs with Charles Fleischer is truly David Fincher just going for it and making a horror movie sequence. He's just trying to scare the shit out of you the whole time. And so I definitely think there are pieces of it there. Um, But also, you know, we wanted with that movie to be very um, journalistic and presentational and, and not overly, you know, that sequence maybe aside overly sort of uh, operatic, you know, in terms of, you know, whereas, you know, with seven, David was like, that was a movie I'm trying to scare you. Zodiac, he's like, I want to make, I don't want to make another serial killer movie. I want to make the last serial killer movie. So we kind of came at it from a different perspective. But it's, you know, it's stuff like that is just, you know, with with filmmakers like him and then hopefully with filmmakers like me is always kind of a tool you have in the belt that you can pull out if you need to. That was literally the scene I was thinking of when, when you said yeah, that. Right? Like, like aside <laughs> from the murder scenes, which are, you know, action oriented, what does that scene with Gyllenhaal in the basement look like on paper? How simple is it? Is it all, you know, about editing or like, what does it look like when you write it? I mean, it was just, it was a very, you know, it's a very scary moment. And Robert Graysmith writes about it in his book a little bit. And I sort of went, oh, this is amazing. 
Um, and it's just that thing where you kind of don't know what's around the corner. Do you know what I mean? It's that mm -hmm. it's a very simple idea of you go downstairs and then you hear someone walking around upstairs and, but there shouldn't be anyone upstairs. And, and the guy who you're with is saying there's no one upstairs, but the way he's looking at you makes you think there might be. Um, and that sort of idea of being suddenly realizing you may have made a terrible mistake and put yourself in danger is a, I think a feeling we've all had, whether it be walking down a dark alley at night or kind of, you know, going, oh wait, shit, this was stupid. I shouldn't have done. Um, and on paper, um, look, it's on the internet. You can, <laughs> you can pull up the script, but it just, I, I try and write, you know, I, somebody told me a long time ago, it's sort of being a screenwriter is, is everybody trying to be sort of Ernest Hemingway. You're trying to say the most, you're trying to give the most amount of information with the least amount of words. Um, and keeping things very simple. And I try and write that way. And I try and sort of hopefully put a rhythm into things that you kind of understand. You know, hopefully, hopefully you read it and you feel like you're watching something as opposed to having something overly described to you. Mm, right. So you mentioned watching the, the other four screams. Did you also go back and maybe read the first screenplay? I'm just curious if you're- Oh yeah. Were you thinking about like getting in the actors' heads that agreed to do the first one or anything like that? I'm, I'm curious how you, if you wrote the characters differently at all with these legacy characters. I think it was more about, well, first of all, just Kevin's screenplay is incredible. And the other one is Scream 2 is also, you can find online too, an earlier draft of that. And just the way he writes character and dialogue is so sort of incredible and, and verbose and amazing. And I think so, you know, we wanted to, we wanted our, it was very important for us to make sure that our movie felt like it was within the same universe. That was, you know, very much of it. So, you know, you never want to do an impression because I always sort of feel like if you're trying to impersonate someone else's work, it, it's going to come off as a less, you know, if you try and write like Aaron Sorkin, you're not going to be able to write like Aaron Sorkin. But if you try and write a character Aaron Sorkin's written in that character's voice, that's a different sort of thing. So I think it wasn't about sort of doing it differently than him or aping it it just was literally okay how do we how how do we think guy and jamie sydney prescott would react to this situation and then we had kevin williamson there we could show it to him and go what do you think and and you know when kevin says no that that works you go great when kevin says sydney prescott wouldn't say that you listen to kevin williamson and then when nev campbell says sydney prescott would say it differently you listen to nev campbell so it, it really is one of those you know, it takes a village kind of situations. So Scream is known for, you know, calling out the tropes of the genre. Are there any like smaller hidden tropes you've noticed that you like, let's make sure we avoid X, Y, Z when going into this? Um, I think that's a, that's a great question. I think more of, um, less a trope of the genre, but more just in terms of, you know, that I always felt one of the biggest, um, things that people that make scream work is the fact that it really is a murder mystery at the core of it and i think that playing fair with an audience in a murder mystery is really important um so that and that's why the, the first movie is so brilliant because you get to the end of it and you find out who the killers are and you go of course it's them you know what i mean because you've been given all of this information along the way and the movie hasn't the movie has played fair with you the whole time. You know, it hasn't held back information. It hasn't, you know, um, and so that was something 
that probably doesn't get talked about a lot, but was very important for Guy and I um, in terms of sort of building the, the mystery portion of the movie. Let's do a couple more. Um, yeah. Are there any, co- any bits of common bad advice you hear about this getting passed along within screenwriting that you wish people would stop saying, or maybe it's, it should be different than what you hear? I mean, I think everyone, <laughs> it's funny because there's a lot of people who really like to give a lot of advice. Um, and I think sometimes the people who are giving it the advice just need to be quiet. Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? It's great. Um, I will say the one thing I see come up a bunch, and this isn't necessarily advice, but people talking about how you have to protect your work and make sure that people don't screw you over and screw, you know, writers, I think as, as, as a, as a, as a group, we're very um, sensitive. We're very, you know, we've, we've put our blood, sweat and tears into something. And, you know, if somebody comes at it with a, you know, sort of a, a thought of changing it, you know, no matter how, um, you know, how long you've been doing it, your first reaction is, is always internally some version of fuck you. <laughs> you know, I worked really hard on this. Um, and I think the truth of the matter is filmmaking is a collaboration. And, you know, obviously there are, there are certain bad, bad, you know, you know, bad influences. I was going to say bad actors, but I don't mean actors. I mean, you know, just people out there who could hurt your screenplay and don't know what they're doing. But a lot of times, you know, there's great wisdom in the notes you get. There's great, you know, I always sort of look at it as a situation where, it's like medicine where like, I'm the doctor, I'm the guy with the degree who knows what he's doing. But if the patient, if someone comes in and says, you have a problem in your second act, they're, they're diagnosing something that I might not have seen. Now it's my job to figure out what the actual problem in the second act is. And maybe it's a problem in the first act and they're just feeling it in the second act or, but the idea of pushing that away, ignoring that advice, no, I have to protect what I've already written and not taking the opportunity to look at your work and make it better, I think is, you know, especially for younger writers or people starting out is, is really a learned sort of experience. And I will say the people who keep working in this industry are ones who are able to um, seem to really be able to take those notes, to take that sort of call it criticism or what you will and turn it and make it something better. Just taking a break before the last question here. This last question actually is about James Vanderbilt's involvement with the Spider-Man franchise. So if you have not seen the new Spider-Man 3 movie or unaware of his writing for 1 and 2 with Andrew Garfield, you may want to pause this sequence because there are some spoilers for the new Spider-Man film. You worked on the the Spider-Man franchise with Andrew Garfield. Did you see the third movie? What did you kind of think? And I can do a spoiler but what was your kind of thoughts about because you're part of that world how did you kind of see everything tying together i thought it was great i i mean i thought it was amazing i always sort of said the you know the best thing we ever did on those movies was cast andrew he's just such a great actor and a great and and by the way cast emma as gwen um because she was amazing and they were amazing together but the um it was just lovely and i have to say it's so nice to see him kind of getting his laurels right now and people yeah. going oh man he's so much and it's like yeah he is and it's, so it's i just thought it was great i thought it was really cool um 
and the weird thing for me too is I started on Spider-Man by writing a, a version of Spider-Man 4 um, for Toby mm. with Sam Raimi. So it's sort of, I've, I've written for Toby and I've written for Andrew and I've loved what they've done with Tom Holland and the MCU. So it just, yeah, I thought it was fantastic. And I, you know, the people I worked with on those movies, you know, Amy Pascal and Avi Arad are all still there, you know, Matt Tolmack. And so watching them have this wonderful success has been, you know, really gratifying. Thank you for tuning in to the show. If it's your first time listening, make sure to hit that subscribe button and visit my new website for information on the YouTube channel, the blog, the podcast, and my new book, Ink by the Barrel, which takes advice from these 200 plus interviews and more at brockswinson.com. You'll see the link in the show notes. Thanks again.